Well, welcome everyone. We're in part two of our Christmas series called Christmas Party. And uh, in this series, we're talking about God's biggest party ever, where the entire world will receive the greatest Christmas gift and blessing, the birth of Jesus. And so that's what we've been talking about. And we've also been looking at how we can prepare our minds and our hearts to be ready for this incredible party. Now, if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 18. We're going to drift a little bit off of the kind of traditional Christmas story this week and next week, um, but we're going to be looking at how we're preparing our hearts for this party. But 1 Kings 18 is where we're going to hang out today. And as you get there, let me just share this. Um, all of us, all of us in our lives have probably made at some time or another a bad deal or a bad investment. How many of you have ever heard of the, the chain called Dave and Busters? Can you raise your hand if you've heard of Dave and Busters? Okay, about half of you. For those of you who don't know, it's a massive uh, restaurant and arcade chain that's around the country. Um, it's kind of like a, a, a grown-up version of Chuck E. Cheese is basically how I describe it. Well, about 15 years ago, when I was living near Baltimore, um, I discovered uh, something at the local Dave and Buster's near my house. I discovered that I had this unusual skill. There was this game at Dave and Buster's called the Drillomatic, where you had to use a joystick and you had to line up a drill and you had to have it precisely lined up in order to hit a target. And in the center of this machine, at all these targets, in the center was the smallest possible target. This was the jackpot target. It was worth 1,000 tickets if you could hit it. And somehow I developed this uncanny ability, a superpower if you will, to perfectly line up this drill almost every single time and hit the jackpot. Like I, I memorized like very minute, you know, scratches on the machine to figure out how to line this thing up perfectly. And sometimes it would misalign and you would have to tap it a couple times certain ways to get it to line up. But I could do this like almost every single time, thousand tickets, thousand tickets, thousand tickets. And they had some pretty cool prizes at this Dave and Buster's. They had, they had Xbox, they had Nintendo systems, PlayStation video game systems. You could get those for about 100,000 tickets. They had Apple iPods when the iPod first came out and was like really thick. They had those for about 50,000 tickets. And so my, on my days off, I started going to Dave and Buster's and I would sit in a machine literally for hours and hours from open to close spending hundreds of dollars, but winning everything they had in their store. And it was insane. I became obsessed. And people would gather around me, around this machine, and they would watch in awe as I drained it of all its tickets, and we'd have to wait for the, you know, one of the employees to come and reload the machine. They'd have to reload it multiple times in a day. And after a, a few weeks of doing this, and spending, again, hundreds of dollars, I probably won, though, like thousands of dollars in video game systems and iPods. However, I had been doing this on all my days off, and I had been neglecting my wife and my two preschool daughters at the time for weeks. I was addicted. I was addicted to the feel of winning, of being great at something. So about three or four weeks into this, I'm sitting at the Drillomatic machine one day with a mountain of tickets piling up at my feet, and my wife, Julie, walks into Dave and Buster's with our three-year-old and our one-year-old in a stroller. And she taps me on my back. 
And I turn around and she's like, yeah, this isn't happening anymore. You're done. Get to the car. You're in timeout. <laughs> and I was like, woman, I am the man of this house. You will respect my authority. Just kidding. I was like, yes, ma'am. And I got up <laughs> and I went to the car. But see, here's the deal. I had wasted time and energy and money on something that didn't really leave me with an adequate return on that investment. Now, I'm willing to bet that most of us here have made a bad investment or two in our lives. How many of you would say, Pastor, at some point in my life, I made a bad financial investment? Show of hands. Look around the room, almost everybody. How many of you would say, you know what? Um, I made a bad relational investment in someone I dated at some point. We see a show of hands? Yeah, again, almost everybody. How, how many of you are, are, are sitting next to that person right now? Don't raise your hand. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. We don't want to cause trouble this morning. But all of us have probably made at one time or another a bad investment. And we invested time and energy and emotion and finances into something, okay? We're, we're, we're connected to it. It really became a form, if you will, of our worship. And what we just did a few minutes ago with, with singing and celebrating God, that can be a kind of worship, definitely. But whatever you invest your time, your emotion, and your resources into is a kind of of worship. It's a very real kind of worship. And think about this. We live in a world that encourages us to worship just about everything around us other than Jesus. And our culture maybe doesn't directly tell us not to worship Jesus, but it points out to us all the other things that if we could just have that in life, we would find true joy and happiness. And, and so in America, especially during this time of year, we are encouraged to put our time, our energy, our emotions, our finances towards countless things that in reality will not give us a return on our investment. And look, I'm not knocking the United States of America. I love my country. I believe that we are so blessed as a nation. If you don't believe that, you know, I've said it before, go on a mission trip in a third world country. It'll change your mind quick. America is like the only place on earth where you can struggle with poverty and obesity at the same time. We are very, very blessed as a nation, no doubt. But we're also a depressed nation. Do you know that we lead the world in clinical depression and prescriptions for antidepressant drugs? We have more opportunities than anybody in the world, and we're more depressed than anyone in the world. Why is that? Well, I believe a part of it is because we've bought into the lie that more stuff equals a better life. And I'm not even talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about people who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, but they walk around with little or no joy in their life. Notice I didn't say happiness. Happiness is often based on our circumstances, but joy is based on the understanding of who Jesus is. And most of us don't live with true joy, a state of contentment, and confidence and hope that despite whatever circumstances we go through in life, that we believe that God is with us, that we believe that he loves us. And I believe that the reason for that is we have wasted far too much time, energy, emotion, and even resources chasing after some poor investments. So in order to change our mentality, we need to grasp a very, very important 
biblical principle, and it's called the joy principle. And if you're taking notes, the joy principle, we'll put it up on the screens, but the joy principle simply states this, that the object of your worship will determine the level of your joy. The object of your worship, where you direct your worship to, will determine the level of your joy. And the reason today that some of us don't have sustaining joy in our lives is because we're too focused on the wrong object of worship. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see an extraordinary story that really helps to illustrate this principle. In fact, in my opinion, it's one of the coolest stories in the entire Bible. Now, now some of you know that I'm a big MMA fan. I love mixed martial arts. Um, in fact, a couple of you guys were over at my house last night watching the UFC fight. It was actually one of the, the biggest upsets in fighting history since maybe Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson, where uh, Amanda Nunes, the dominant women's champion, lost the title last night. So if you know me, you know I like a good SmackDown. And if you like a good SmackDown, you are really going to like this story, okay? First, let me give you a little background info. There's this nation called Israel that we talked about last week. We went a little bit through the history. And we talked about, if you remember, God's incredible promise to this man. What was his name? Abraham, that's right. So he made this incredible promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, from your lineage, the world is gonna be blessed. He said, I'll make you a great nation. Check, the nation of Israel came from Abraham. He said, I will make your name great. Check, most all of us have probably heard of Father Abraham before. And he said, from you, I'm gonna bless the entire world, okay? And the nation of Israel, though, it began as a slave nation. So early on, they became slaves in Egypt. And then this guy Moses comes along, and God speaks to Moses, and he says, you Israelites are my people. He said, I'm your God. I'm going to do some great things through you. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses shows up into Pharaoh's throne room, and he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go, right? For those of you who who don't know that song, you are blessed. I just want to point that out to you. That was, my, that was my student ministry experience growing up. Luckily, Pastor TJ does not subject our students to the Pharaoh Pharaoh song at Fuse. But the Israelites, they get out of Egypt, and, and after they get out of Egypt, they have good times where they're following God and trusting in him, and then they have bad times where they forget about God and they start to drift. And then in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, they demand God for something. They demand God for a king. They say, all these other nations around us have kings. God, we want a king too. And God warns them, says, you don't really want an earthly king. Because God knows he's about to provide for them in history, the king of kings, right? The Lord of lords, his son, Jesus. He says, you don't need an earthly king, but they continue to demand it. And so God grants their request. You know, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is we get exactly what we asked for. And that's what happens to the Israelites. So God gives them this king named Saul, who winds up being crazy, okay? He's psycho Saul. And then they get their best king named David, the guy who beat Goliath. And then David's son comes along, Solomon, who was considered the wisest man to ever live. And he starts off really good, building the temple, following God. But then he starts to drift, and he starts to chase after these, these foreign women who worship idols instead of God, and he turns his back on God. And next comes his son, Rehoboam, who takes over. And really early on in his leadership, he makes a very critical, poor leadership decision, and it ultimately costs him the kingdom. See, Israel only had three kings as a united kingdom that ruled over the nation. But Rehoboam's bad decision causes the kingdom to split. 
And it's divided in two. You have Israel to the north, and then you have Judah to the south. Now, Judah had some good kings, but Israel wound up with bad king after bad king after bad king. I mean, it was bad, and then it got worse than bad. It got so bad, in fact, that Israel, which was God's chosen people, stopped following God altogether. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, we get introduced to the worst king probably that Israel ever had, and his name was Ahab. And Ahab had a wife who was even worse than he was, and her name was Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was an evil, evil woman. In fact, she was so bad that her name is now in the dictionary. You can look up the word Jezebel, and it means a shameless or immoral woman. I mean, you wouldn't want to name your daughter Jezebel, right? You wouldn't name your dog Jezebel. Maybe your cat, okay? (laughs) And Ahab and Jezebel did not follow God. They worshipped a pagan god named Baal. And they instituted this whole group of fake priests called the prophets of Baal. And finally, God had enough. God decided he was going to do something to shake up all the people and to get their attention. So God through his prophet Elijah, said that it was not going to rain in Israel for the next three years. Now, this, this was a big deal, okay? If you're frustrated right now because of inflation and things like that, I mean, what happened in Israel over these three years would blow that out of the water. Israel was an agricultural society. They had vineyards, crops, livestock. So when it stopped raining for three years, the entire economy crashed. And this is how God tried to get the attention of a nation that had turned its back on him. And so King Ahab freaks out and he starts to go on a manhunt to find this prophet Elijah who had declared that God was going to stop the rain. And so he searches the land in one direction and he sends his servant Obadiah to look for Elijah in the other direction. And Obadiah was actually a decent guy. He still believed in God. And after three years, God tells Elijah to go and present himself to Obadiah. It's time for him to go eventually meet Ahab and get ready to rumble. And so this is where the story kind of kicks off for us today. 1 Kings 18, picking up in verse 16. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, we'll put it up on the screens too. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him that he had found Elijah. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel. So Ahab puts all the blame on Elijah. He's like, it's not my fault the economy is crashing, even though I've turned my back on God and have led all the people astray. It's your fault, Elijah. And so Elijah responds to him, verse 18. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Now let me stop there for a second. The smackdown is happening where? Mount Carmel. That's right. Not Mount Caramel. I just want to point that out. I was in Candyland and Sugar Rush from Wreck-It Ralph. Okay. It's Mount Carmel. And then Elijah says this in verse 19. And he says, and bring and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah's kind of a bad dude. He says, he says, Ahab, you go and get your whole army of 850 prophets and let's do this. And word spread. 
I mean, people wanted to come see this. This was bigger than the rumble in the jungle. This was like in middle school when a fight's about to go down, right? And there's always one kid and he yells, fight! And then all the kids gather around and they're like, fight, fight, fight. That's like what's happening here, okay? Everyone from Israel gathers around to see this fight. And in one corner, we have Elijah by himself. And in the other corner, you have 850 prophets, And he's like, let's do this, son. Verse 20, picking up. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, follow him. If Baal is your God, follow him. But the people, the people said nothing. So don't miss this. This is what Elijah's doing. He's telling the people, you've all abandoned the one true God. And you've been worshiping a false god, a fake god named Baal for three years. How's that going for you? How you like that decision? Elijah's like, how's it working out for you guys these past three years? You're bankrupt. Your flocks have died. Your crops won't grow. In other words, hey, people, you made a really bad investment in where you've placed your worship. And don't miss this. Elijah was not talking to pagan people. He was talking to church people. He was talking to the people of God. They knew the stories of God. They knew the history. They knew about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They knew about Moses. They knew their history. They knew about King David. They had just chosen to worship the wrong thing. Story continues on. Then Elijah said to them, I am, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. Elijah continues with his instructions. He says, I'll prepare the other bull and I'll put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now, Baal, you might not know this, but Baal was considered to be the God who controlled lightning and fire. He was the kind of creative and destructive God. And his images were often depicted with him holding a lightning bolt in his hand, like Zeus. So the prophets of Baal figured, hey, this is to our advantage. He wants to start fire. This is definitely to our advantage. Elijah said, let's prepare sacrifices on two altars. Baal, you get an altar, the Lord gets an altar, and whichever God lights it up is the real God. And they all agree to this instruction. So looking at this story today, there are two questions we need to answer if you're taking notes. Number one is this. Question number one is this. Creation or creator? Creation or creator? Have you ever seen someone and they just look ridiculous to you? I'm not talking about the ugly sweater you brought a Cracker Barrel, okay? I'm I'm just saying, like, the person that you just look at them and you know something about them, like, you know something about their life, and because you know that about them, you can't look at them and keep a straight face. One person like that for me is this awesome teen um, that I had back in our church in Maryland named Chris. And, and he's now in Kansas. He wound up going to, um, to uh, Mid-American Nazarene University. And he's, a, he's actually now a clinical counselor and a father. But as a teenager, he was one of the most accident-prone kids in the entire church. 
and he was always getting hurt. Like I wanted to wrap him in bubble wrap and put a permanent helmet on his head. One time, him and some of the other teens thought it would be a good idea to play leapfrog in the lobby of the church during the service. And he jumped so high off a kid's back that he slammed his head into the rafters in our foyer and not only scalped himself, but knocked himself out. It literally looked like a crime scene from CSI in our lobby, okay? Some of the greeters almost passed out. We had to cut the, the service short. We had to call an ambulance to come and to get him. And his dad was the worship leader, so it was a little bit embarrassing on many levels. And then he had this big bandage, this ridiculous bandage on his head for several weeks. And when, whenever someone has a visible injury, by the way, people notice, right? They ask questions. For some of you who are a little bit more um, introverted and maybe you have a hard time inviting people to church, um, here's what you could do. As, as Pastor Jim said, grab some of the, the Christmas invitations in the lobby on your way out and then head over to Walgreens and get the biggest bandage you can find and just slap it on your forehead. I guarantee you people will come up to you and they will ask you what's going on this week and you can say nothing. I just want to remind myself to invite you to the Christmas Eve service and you can give them a card. If you do that, by the way, take a picture and send it to us. We will, we will post that photo. That will be absolutely awesome. But going back to, to, to Chris, he was so, so accident prone. Um, one of the injuries he had, one time we, we had a student choir um, and they were going to be singing uh, during Christmas time. They were doing a performance that involved singing and dancing. It was like a choreographed kind of choir. And Chris was one of the first teens to sign up for this because he thought that he had some good dance moves. Well, the big day of the performance comes and Chris is so pumped up and he's just like getting into it and he starts to dance and he brings the house down, like literally. He was so into his dancing and singing that he forgot that he was on a raised stage and he danced right off the stage and into the crowd. And so now whenever I see Chris, even his Facebook post where he's holding up his baby and stuff like that, I can't help but crack a smile. We, we've all seen people who look ridiculous. And, and in this Bible story, at first glance, the people in this story seem absolutely ridiculous until, until we start to see a little bit of ourselves in them. Check this out. This is just fascinating. Picking back up in the story. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. It continues. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. Now, at this point in the story, we're looking at these people and we're thinking, that is the dumbest thing that I have ever heard. They're dancing around an altar asking Baal, a fake God, to set the altar on fire. And they're investing time and energy and emotion and resources dancing for hours and hours around this altar and nothing happened. Well, it gets even crazier. I just want to give you a trigger warning. If you're from a church background, this next verse might offend you. But one of the things that I've always promised you here is that we're going to teach from the whole Bible, even the parts of scripture that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Verse 27, here's what it says. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. 
Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Don't forget that word. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Now, if you have an English standard version Bible, it doesn't say the word traveling like it does in NIV. Instead, it says, maybe he's relieving himself. And, and this is actually, this is actually the best translation out of the Hebrew for that word. Elijah is standing in front of 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, dancing around, singing, dancing, praising a fake God. People are watching and Elijah starts screaming at them, maybe your God doesn't hear you because he's busy taking a dump, okay? <laughs> maybe he's constipated, that's why it's taken so long. This is in the Bible, picking up in verse 28. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So from sunrise to sunset, these people worshipped at this altar. They gave time, money, resources, energy, blood, sweat, and tears, literally worshipping. And the fire never fell. That's ridiculous. Now, I'm willing to bet we probably don't have many Baal worshipers here today. And we think, you know what, Pastor, I am so glad that we as a society and the people have progressed beyond that. But my question is, have we? Have we? Because there are many of us here today, and we might not worship Baal, but we worship some other things, don't we? Like our politics or our favorite football team. And listen, I love football. I love watching games on Sunday after church. But here's the truth. There are men and women across this country, and for them, that's their God. And, and the reason I know that is there are many people that if their team loses a game on Sunday, they are angry and depressed all week long. And they allow their lives to be flipped upside down based on the performance of 20 and 30-year-old young men and Tom Brady, right? I don't know, he's like 45 now. He's incredible. People they don't even personally know, they allow their performance to affect their emotions and their lives for the week. The largest houses of worship in our country on Sundays are NFL stadiums. There are some other things we worship, aren't there? There are relationships, I want to talk mainly to the women for a second. And the reason I want to challenge the women is because I'm a dad of three daughters. And what I've seen some young women go through in life breaks my heart as a father. There's some women here who will chase after and date someone that they know in their heart of hearts, they will have to walk away from their relationship with Jesus to pursue that relationship. That they will have to walk away from what God is calling for their life to pursue and date that person. And do you know why they do it? Because they've placed on their altar, they worship a relationship. And you set up a person to be your functional savior, to draw your self-esteem and your self-worth from. So much so that you're willing to abandon your actual savior, Jesus, to get there. And they will never 
They will never meet your needs the way that Jesus can. They will disappoint you. Do you know how I know? Because they're human and they weren't meant to be your savior. There are many more things that we could think of that we put on the altar. There's Friday night and the weekend. If I can just have one more party, one more wild experience, one more drink, then I'm going to be happy. That's a horrible place to invest your worship. There are people who worship power and career and money. We talked about this before. The number one false god that people worship is their money and their stuff. People believe money will give them joy and happiness. They think if I could just have a little bit more, I'm going to be happy. Really? Because if that's true, Hollywood would be the happiest place on earth, right? And we all know how jacked up that place is. There are people, men in particular, who are now strangers in their own homes with no real relationship with their spouse, with their kids, because of their worship and pursuit of power and money. It's a horrible place to worship. And we look at the worshipers of Baal, and we think they look ridiculous, while many of us Christians go through life every day dancing around our own altars, and we don't even realize it. Story goes on. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. I mean, no one had been worshiping there for years. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Continues on with the stones he built, an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two CF seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bowl into pieces, he laid it on the wood, and he said to them, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And how valuable was water at this point? I mean, it hadn't rained in three years. And he's telling them to pour water and soak the offering. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. They did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar. And it even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that you have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 37, then the fire of the Lord fell and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil. It also licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, flat on their face, and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What the prophets of Baal could not accomplish in an entire day of worship and dancing and slashing themselves, Elijah accomplished with God in mere moments. Only one altar was lit on fire that day, and it occurred as a result of worship being put in the proper place. You want joy to pour down? You want joy to rain down in your life? It has everything to do with where you put your worship. Do you worship things of creation or do you worship the creator? And if you truly want to prepare your hearts for Christmas, you need to know where you're putting 
your worship. This brings us to our last question. Number two, apathy or adjustments? Apathy or adjustments? Since I moved um, up to Maine from Maryland about two and a half years ago, I discovered that Maine has the best ice cream. Can I get an amen in the room today? There are so many great ice cream places around here. And I literally went out for ice cream multiple times a week, like all summer long. And then this fall, I had my physical (laughs) with my doctor. And I got up on the scale. Now, have you ever got on a scale before and the scale cussed you out? Because that's what happened to me. And I was visibly upset. And Julie, I came back from the appointment. Julie asked me what was wrong. And I was like, that scale said that I gained 20 pounds. And she was like, well, stop eating ice cream every day. And I was like, why you got to be talking about my ice cream? But she was right. (laughs) I had to make some adjustments in what I was doing. The same thing goes for you here today. God is speaking to you about where your worship is going. And you can choose to be apathetic and walk out of here, business as usual, continue down the same path towards destruction and drifting from God, or you can make some adjustments in your life. God's not trying to condemn you today, by the way. He loves you, but he wants to correct you. So as we close, I just want to offer really quickly two practical adjustments we can make. Number one is this, number one, Acknowledge what was ruined. Acknowledge what was ruined. Before God sent the fire, Elijah had to repair the broken altar, the altar that was ruined and neglected. So ask yourself this question today. Has there ever been a time in my life where I felt closer to God than I do right now? And if the answer is yes, here's the newsflash. He didn't move. He didn't move. You can't come to church once a month or once a quarter, never pray, never study God's word, never get into any kind of community or small group and have a dynamic relationship with God. It doesn't happen. If you want to get your worship back on track and start living in the joy of being a follower of Jesus, You need to first acknowledge and confess what was ruined. And confession is not just information. Confession is about transformation. Confession isn't just telling God, hey, God, I did something wrong. Confession should lead to adjustment, which leads to to point number two, repent and turn your heart to God. Don't just acknowledge what was ruined, but then repent And turn your heart to God. Repentance is kind of a dirty word that we don't like to talk about. But here's what it means. It means acknowledging that I'm worshiping in the wrong place. And then turning to worship in the right place. See, we've made the mistake in church world of talking about confession a lot. But failing to explain repentance. And so we get convicted sometimes. We're like, man, I know I shouldn't be doing this. And we turn to God and we say, God, will you forgive me? I know this is wrong. God, I'm sorry. But then we walk away and a few days or a few weeks later, we go right back to the same thing. Make no mistake about it. If you're not willing to repent, if you're not willing to turn away from a false altar you're worshiping at, you are never gonna find sustaining joy in your life. But I've never met a person who made the decision to confess and repent 
and turned back to God and then later regretted that decision. It's when we chase false gods. It's when we put our worship in false things that we wind up having regrets. God doesn't want you to chase false gods that will never satisfy your soul, that will never give you real, true, lasting joy in your life. He wants you to direct your worship at the only altar where your thirsty soul will truly be quenched. After Elijah won the battle, after the the prophets of Baal and Asherah were destroyed, here's the amazing thing that happened. Last verse we'll look at today, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink. You hear that? There's the sound of a heavy rain. And after a three-year drought, raindrops started to fall from the sky. As we close today, I want to give each of you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. You may recognize that, that you've given other things in your life the position of worship. And today God's calling you to confess. He's calling you to repent. He wants you to get your heart ready for Christmas. He wants you to turn your heart back to him to place your worship where it belongs. Can we pray together this morning, church? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for being just an amazing, generous, forgiving God. You're the God who never gives up on us. We screw up time and time again, but you're always there. You're always calling us, directing us back to you. You did that with the Israelites time and time again. God, we thank you so much for the story of Elijah and his battle against the prophets of Baal. And sometimes we look at the story and we laugh and we're like, it's so ridiculous. People dancing and worshiping and slashing themselves around an altar of a fake God all day long, wasting their time and energy, effort, resources. It's ridiculous. But then we look at our own lives and we look at the things we're putting on the altar. Relationships, money, career, sports teams, politics, whatever it might be, things that we elevate to the position that should belong to you. If you're here this morning and God has just been speaking to you and you recognize today that if you're being authentic, if you're being, if you're being transparent, you would say, God, I know... I've got some things on the altar that don't belong there. They're false, false gods that I'm worshiping right now. God, forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. If that's you this morning, would you just lift up a hand just as an act of faith to respond to him and say, God, that's me. I know there are things I got on the altar. Praise God. Hands up all over the place today. God, I thank you for just giving these folks the courage to acknowledge that. God, I pray that, that, you would, that you would help some of us who are being convicted right now to be willing to not only confess, yeah, God, I got some wrong things on the altar, but to be willing to repent. Say, God, I'm ready to make a step. I'm going to turn away from these things, and I'm going to put you where you belong, that you are my God, that you deserve first place in my life. As the worship team um, closes us in this song, I just want you to respond to that, however you feel God leading you.
For some of you, the altars are open. You, you may need to come right up here and symbolically say, God, I'm laying you down at the altar. You're who's gonna be my, my only focus of worship. I'm turning away from these other things. Some of you, maybe that's right at your seat where you're at. And I want you to respond as the worship team plays. Let's sing together. singing, please, please. As Pastor AJ often says, this is the greatest decision you can make. Do not take the fork of apathy today. Do not walk out of this place with business as usual. This is the opportunity. This is the now that you have right now. Monday is not promised. Tuesday is not promised. This is your now. Please do not uh, take this lightly. Let's continue to sing. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. 
blessings upon these your people as always God we we ask that you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today this incredible story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal but that God you also give us the courage to take action to make an adjustment to make a course correction in our life to be willing to take a next step in our walk with you so that we can step into the greater things, the greater plans that you have for our lives, our families, our future. God, we want to be a people who truly live with joy. We want our hearts to be prepared to really receive what Christmas is all about. So God, I, I ask that you would continue to speak with us, convict us, and help us to make those changes to really place on the altar of worship what belongs to be there. For you to be first in our life. For all our false gods to be pushed away, Lord God. Give us the courage to do that. Help us to confess. Help us to repent. Give us a new future. We love you, God. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise for what you're doing and what you're going to do in the lives of your people. We love you. We pray this today in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Hope you have an amazing week. Can't wait to see you back next week for part three of Christmas Party. And again, I want to encourage you in the lobby. Grab an invitation card. If there's something God's laying on your heart, invite you to receive. We got six kids left on the blessing screen. I want to see all of you get adopted today. So please do that as well. God bless. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise, you only, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we Bye.